Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 as we continue in our study of the four soils of the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils or the parable of the seed. It's been called many things. Mark chapter 4. We began this a couple weeks ago and we're going to continue this week and the next couple. So let's just remember it by, uh, let me read that, putting it freshly in your memory. Mark chapter 4. Follow along as I read the first 12 verses. Jesus, that is he, began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. He was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some of the seed fell by the road. The birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched and because it had no root, withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it out and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil and as they grew up and they increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30 and 60 and 100 fold. He was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may not see and perceive and while hearing they may not hear and understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. I grew up in a church that cared deeply about seeing souls saved. Highly evangelistic. The training I received in the early years of my um, upbringing in seeing the, the passion that our pastor had, the passion that our, our elders and deacons had, the passion that our church had for seeing people come to Christ made an indelible impact on my life. We had so many ministries that were outreach focused and I, I look back sometimes with envy and think we could learn a lot from, from that church. At the top of those well-intended ministries though, were two weeks of the year that continued to be a little bleeping red light to get my attention in my memory. These two weeks were known as revivals. So I'm not sure of the theology behind all of the thinking, but twice a year we planned on God to send a revival in our church. And so we had two weeks, one in the uh, early spring and one in the early fall where the church would get together on five successive nights unless the revival really took hold. And I remember sometimes that extended into the next week. And we would hear a preacher, have a guest preacher come in and preach every night. The whole church would come out. Church was packed. And the idea was bring all your friends to hear the gospel. 
I still remember some of these guest preachers. Freddie Gage, I remember hearing him multiple times growing up. Church every night. I'm not sure it gets any better than that. The idea was to re-energize believers and for weeks ahead of that to encourage those of us who were believers to bring our friends to hear the gospel. Now, looking back on those revivals, I remember so many people, even friends that I bought, brought, walking in the aisle, praying the prayer, some even being baptized. But an honest look back at those decisions that were made brought me then and brings me now a great degree of sadness. Because the truth is, there were a lot of people who made public professions of faith in Christ. And for a time, they came to church, seemed to have a desire to repent, showed signs of obedience, loved the people of God. But, but then many of these people began to drift away from the church there for a while, but didn't stay committed. Fast forward a decade where I was then a youth pastor. Now, as a youth pastor, like Adam, who serves us so well, and Tim, who serves our junior hire so well, and Trevor, who serves our college so well, one of the significant kind of building blocks of student ministries are retreats and conferences and camps. I love, I love the idea of getting students away where they're focusing on spiritual realities, the distractions of the world are set aside and they're uniquely focused on the gospel and truth. It would be impossible for me. I think Kim and I tried one time to do some rough figures about how many youth camps and retreats I've been to. It's not unusual when you have these retreats for students to be convicted about their sin, they, they hear the gospel, they see the peer pressure of others who are following Christ and they make a commitment at camp to become a Christian, to follow the Lord. But time after time and person after person, I've watched as these students reintegrate back into their worlds and their commitments to Christ evaporate. Maybe you've had an experience like that. You've seen someone make a commitment to Christ. Maybe you've shared the gospel with them and they've responded. You've seen someone from work come or from your school come and be apart for a while. And then they just drift off. How do you make sense of that? What do you do with that experience? In the passage before us, the grace the wisdom of Jesus, of God in flesh, gives us a theology and a category to evaluate those kind of shallow, short-lived, superficial commitments. And this is what I find encouraging in this passage. Not that people drift off, but that the Lord understands that to such extent and to such degree that he informs us how to properly interpret these kind of short-lived commitments. I also think he warns us not to have this commitment ourselves. How do we make sense of these accounts? The dismay, the discouragement that I felt, I know as a young youth pastor about these things and as a young kid seeing revivals happen and they seem to work that week but not much farther. 
Well, Jesus demonstrates absolute lordship and knowledge in the way the gospel is received and rejected. And he lays out the cost of discipleship in this next soil in a way that should inform us. It should comfort us. It should give us a category for understanding and it should encourage us. So in the second soil of the parable, Jesus explains really the theology behind short-lived commitments. Short-lived commitments to Christ. Short-lived conversions, if we would say that. Or we should really call them so-called conversions. He lays out also the cost of discipleship and very clearly warns us of the coming persecution that would land in the life of anyone who would follow Christ. Now, as we noted last week, Jesus provides in this parable an anatomy of faith and unbelief. He, he is so, so wise, so kind, so gracious to not send the disciples out and not to send us out without some idea of what to expect. This is foundational truth for those, those early disciples, those followers of Jesus. They needed to understand what was going to happen and not be surprised by the responses, positively and negatively, to their preaching. And I think it can provide us the same kind of encouragement and perspective as well. Now, so the soil we're looking at this morning provides important insight into faith and unbelief when sometimes, listen, faith is absent. Sometimes unbelief masquerades as faith for a season. We'll also see this same issue next week, although not short-lived, more elongated. Told you the last few weeks, Jesus is telling a parable. Two Greek words come together to form that word parable. Para, which means beside, and balo, which means to cast or to throw, to throw alongside, to put an illustration alongside the truth of a reality in order to give us insight and understanding into what he's saying. It's a very good window to see inside what Jesus is teaching and what he means. He's teaching in parables. Why is he teaching in parables? Well, he tells the disciples here exactly why. You remember the context, verse one, he began to teach by the sea. I showed you that picture. He's in a cove with basically uh, almost a perfect natural amphitheater around him. He's sitting in the boat, the perfect sounding board off of the, the water would have thrown his voice up onto the hillside. People would have heard him, the large crowd. He dismisses the crowd and down in verse 10, it says, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12, meaning it wasn't just these 12 original ones, there's a group of believers who had genuinely begun to follow the Lord and they corner him. He pulls them aside. They ask him, why are you teaching in these analogies? By the way, that tells us that this was probably something new. He had been teaching them very clearly. I mean, how clear is, is he in Mark chapter one? Follow me. He looks at the crowds that were following him and gives them a description, get this, of themselves through an illustration. Threefold description of unbelief is given and a threefold description of belief is given. Three soils that are unbelief and three measures of productivity in those who believe. 
four pictures are given us in four soils. And we, I've given you this as a, as a high altitude outline. We looked last week at the impenetrable soil, which is an indifferent heart. People who just don't care to receive the gospel. They don't give it the time of day or the, uh, the light of day. They just kind of like listen one time and walk away. They may listen multiple times and walk away. There's no interest in hearing more. Then there's what we're looking at today, the shallow soil, which is an impulsive heart. A quick open response, but it doesn't last. Then he gives the, the thorny soil, which is a preoccupied heart. And then finally, he looks at the soil that's receptive, a responsive heart, the good soil. The central point of his instruction is for the followers in the narrative to pursue having ears that hear. They all had ears, but they, they didn't all hear. What he was saying was don't go try to, to purchase some special antenna that will give you a, a pickup of what he's Implying, he was saying, listen and understand what I'm saying. What he's teaching is not hard to understand. It's hard to apply. Having ears to hear means you do something about it. Not that you don't understand if you don't have these ears. Verse 13, he says to them, do you not understand this parable? And this is how important this parable is. Will you not understand? How will you understand all the parables without this one? The sower sows the word. In other words, this is, and he says this in Matthew and in Luke also, this is the foundational first domino of all the parables to get. Basically, he's saying, understand that they all in some measure have to do with true and false faith, genuine, sincere faith and false legalism. He's by himself, verse 10. Matthew tells us, that they ask him, why are you speaking in, in, in parables? We don't get this. Why are you being so unclear? And then we looked at this in detail last week in verses 11 and 12. He answers, to you it's been given to know. You've been given ears to hear the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, everything they get is in parables. Insiders, outsiders, believers, unbelievers. Then Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Verses nine and 10, which is Isaiah's great commissioning. And remember at the end of that great commissioning, which we often don't get all the way to the end of the chapter, he basically says only a 10th of the people are going to receive and repent. Isaiah, I need someone to go. He says, here am I, send me. Okay, go. I'm gonna cleanse your mouth. I'm gonna cleanse your heart. Now go preach. And by the way, only a tenth of the people will have ears to hear. I'm not sure that he was teaching a specific percentage theology there, but he was saying many follow the broad way, like Matthew 7 says, and few find the narrow way. Fast forward to Jesus who quotes that passage in verses 11 and 12. And he says, there are four soils, only one of which results in genuine faith. Now, whether it's one-tenth or one-fourth, I don't think Jesus is teaching percentages here. He is teaching the principle. This is important. Listen, that there will be more unbelievers as a result of your evangelism than believers. Now, that could discourage you but it ought to comfort you. 
That when we're sensing this rejection from people, we know that God is still sovereign. We know that Jesus is still Lord. We know that there is good soil out there to be found. But he's giving us the parameters of faith and unbelief so that we don't quit when we run up against obstacles. He didn't want the disciples to go out after his resurrection the first time they go and one of 10 or one of four people are interested in them say, well, this isn't worth it. It's not working. No, you need to expect this. Now we come to the second soil, verse 16. In a similar way, that's looking back at the, the first soil of the unresponsive heart. What he's saying is this results in unbelief just like that one did. In a similar way, verse 16 these are the ones whom the seed was sown on rocky places. Now we looked at last week, the seed is, is the gospel. It's, Mark tells us, Matthew tells us, it's the word of God. The word means the message of God. And remember the word, word has a, a big range of meaning. Sometimes that means the written word of God. Sometimes that means the, the incarnate word of God, like in John 1. Sometimes it means scripture. Sometimes it means like in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it means the gospel. The word of God is the good news of the gospel. It's the message of God that's contained in his word, personified in Christ, and ultimately culminates in the message of the good news of Jesus. That's the word, that's the seed. So the seed is sown, it's cast, it's proclaimed, it's given, it's shared on soil that's rocky and rocky places. And when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy and they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary. Then when affliction comes, when persecution arises, because of the word, immediately they fall away. Let's look at this soil together. And as we do, I think we can observe three characteristics of those with an impulsive heart to the gospel. Three characteristics of those with an impulsive heart to the gospel. This first characteristic is in verse 16. They have a positive first response to the gospel. They have a positive, a promising first response to the gospel. In a similar way, that looks back at the illustration that he just gave, uh, their unresponsive heart. In other words, just as they didn't believe in this category, here's a new explanation of those who will disbelieve. Look back at the original illustration, by the way. Verse five. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. Remember that. Now look at verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on rocky places who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So here's the, the scenario Jesus lays out. These are people who hear the gospel. They hear the good news. They're evangelized. And originally they receive it. They receive it with joy. Let's look at the illustration for a second. Have you, have you ever seen seed thrown in an area with rocks and bits of dirt where maybe grass grows inadvertently? You know, I was thinking about, um, uh, Aaron, when you guys were talking about being in Italy a few weeks ago and they took volleyball nets over to play volleyball, but the field that they were going to plant the volleyball uh, um, nets on was about an inch or two of dirt and then solid bedrock, right? So they try to put the, these poles in and that's obviously not gonna work. 
That's this scene here. The, there's, there's bedrock, there's rock. Probably this was on the edge of the path, on the edge of the field, where there was rocky areas and there was soil in between the rocks. The reference to the illustration is of people who hear the gospel immediately with a response, an immediate response, a, an impulsive response. Remember our word euthus? We're gonna come back to it over and over. It's one of Mark's favorite words, euthus. It means immediately. He uses it three times in this, about this soil. Verse five in the original illustration, verse 16 and in verse 17. Immediately, immediately, immediately. The idea is that there's a quick, impulsive response to the gospel. Little thought goes into following Christ, even less thought given to the cost of discipleship. Now, let me just say this very very humbly for all of us to hear, okay? Sometimes I think a shallow, immediate, impulsive response to the gospel can be directly related to a very poor description and offer of the gospel. I mean, think about this. You gather a group of people and say, who wants to be forgiven of all their sins? Who wants to go to heaven? Who wants to have mercy and, and a better life? Sometimes the impulsive hearts are directly related to a very bad offer of the gospel that's not accurate, that doesn't include the cost. It's that classic offer that, that, that anchors itself on justification being made right with God and glorification going to heaven, but forget sanctification, which is the cost of discipleship, which is your whole life. These people have an immediate response. And since they do it with joy, I think they do it with joy because they don't hear the whole gospel or they don't listen for the whole gospel. They have a positive first response. Who wouldn't want to go to heaven and have all their sins forgiven? Sign me up. That brings us to a second characteristic of those with an impulsive heart. They have a short-lived response to the gospel. Short-lived, short-lived. It, it doesn't last. Verse 17. And they have no firm root, literally just root. They have no, no diving root from the plant in themselves, but are only temporary. Verse five in the original description of the illustration. And immediately this, this plant springs up because it had no depth of soil. It had enough soil to spring up, but not enough soil to sustain it. I have pavers in my backyard. You know what pavers are? They're like little bricks that look together into a patio. Love these pavers, kinda. Um, I have a constant battle with my pavers and an ongoing relationship with Roundup to try to keep weeds and grass from growing in between my pavers. If some of you are coming over in the middle of the night and planting those seeds, I wanna talk to you because it seems like they just keep coming up. Ask a friend who owns a landscaping business about it and I was surprised to learn something about these pavers. It's, it's interesting. He says, look, if they were laid properly and by all accounts they were, 
There was some material put underneath these pavers so that nothing could grow from the ground up through the pavers. Which sounds good enough, except that things are growing beneath my pavers. He says, here's what happens. Dirt, soil blows into the cracks, sinks into them, and the problem comes from above, not below. That's important because that soil in which my weeds love to activate doesn't go all the way down to the soil. It's very shallow. Comes up easy. It's the easiest weeding you've ever done. You just, very little effort and it comes right out. Hardly any soil there at all. Get a power washer and it just comes straight off. No grip at all. That's the picture that Jesus has of these, these plants, this seed. It comes in a very shallow very shallow. Maybe it's in the hollow of a rock. There's some soil there that's blown in there. And when this, this plant, maybe it's a grain of wheat, sprouts, it starts to grow up. And as the plant comes up, the roots go down, hit bedrock. It doesn't survive. There's a mitigating factor against that that we'll see in just a moment as well. The sower throws the seed some of it lands in the rocky areas where it has very shallow soil. Because of the shallowness, it cannot develop a sustainable root system. Now, I'm talking about weeds. Could you imagine trying to grow tomatoes in between the cracks of my pavers? It wouldn't work. Hosea 6.4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty, listen to this, is like a morning cloud, like the dew which goes away early. Same idea. It's there for a moment and it's gone. J.C. Ryle comments, their religion is no more life than a cut flower. It has no root and soon withers away. That's a great illustration. Why? Why? Why do they wither away? The grace of God is demonstrated and he tells us why, which we come to our third characteristic of those with an impulsive heart to the gospel. Number three, they abandon the gospel when it brings persecution. Here it is. When it brings persecution. Middle of verse 17. Then when affliction or persecution arises, because of the gospel, because of the cost of believing, because of the word that was sown in their hearts. This doesn't just mean they get a, a terrible illness. This doesn't mean that they, they break the leg. This is persecution that comes, the heat of belief, the cost of discipleship is laid on them and they receive persecution then because it has no root, it withered away. In the beginning, the rocky soil, the impulsive heart looks like legitimate faith. It's received with joy. There's happiness. There's emotion about receiving the gospel. Yes, I'm in. I've raised my hand. I've, I've walked the aisle. I've prayed the prayer. I've gone to camp. In fact, they, they're happy about it. First, everything looks genuine. 
But the superficial nature of their faith, the shallowness of their faith, the misunderstanding of the cost associated with their faith when affliction or persecution arises because of what they believe, their convictions, the text says they fall away. This is a really interesting Greek word, the word fall away. Scandalizo. When they are scandalized. That's where we get the word scandalized from. When they are made out to be some kind of relational scandal with someone who disbelieves. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not a Jesus freak. Oh, no, no, I, I don't really believe that. They fall back, they fall away. The idea is when this shallow faith of these impulsive hearts is tested by what discipleship and following Christ genuinely costs They stumble, they fall, they fall away. It's not hard to imagine that some of those who, we mentioned this earlier in the service, some of those who, when Jesus comes in on the triumphal entry, who are putting fig leaves on the ground, who are putting palm branches on the ground, rather, and and seeing the Lord ride on this donkey, and they're saying, Hosanna, this is the king. Let's put him on the throne. It's not hard to imagine that Four days later, they were the same group of people who were saying, crucify him. That's the shallow soil. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, this is our king. He's about to be executed. Well, I don't know him. I know who you're thinking about and we're gonna come to him in a minute. It's important to remember and recognize, though, that from the very beginning of the Christian faith, Christians Christians were persecuted. Jesus knew that in the very beginning. Acts chapter 4, verse 3, Peter and John were arrested for their preaching. Acts chapter 5, verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. Let me read that for you. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him, being full of the spirit. He gazed intently into the heaven. This is obviously talking about Stephen. Said, behold, I see the the heavens open up, the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice against Stephen, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witness laid aside The witnesses laid aside, one of whom was Saul of Tarsus, laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, went on stoning Stephen as he called on the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep, he died. That's the first generation of Christians. Paul is a, pastor at Ephesus. He's called by God to go be a missionary. He leaves Timothy, his son in the faith, to pastor at Ephesus. One of the things that you've heard very often, but listen to it in context, Timothy, I'm going to leave you here to take my position of shepherding this flock. I I want you to care for these sheep. And then he says this, and the, the nuances of this verse are disturbing to me, honestly. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, all who desire 
To live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know what's interesting about that? He doesn't say all who live godly in Christ Jesus. He says all who desire. You just have to be in the trajectory and leaning in the direction of wanting to follow and honor Christ and your life will be a lightning rod for persecution from the enemy. Not everyone who receives persecution stands the test. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. There are those who have this initial response. They look like they're a part of the body of Christ. They act like they're believers. But when the heat comes on their life and their faith begins to cost them some things, they say it's not worth it. And they fade away. You know, I think that there are many in any given church congregation, there are some of you today, there are some listening right now, some of you listening right now, who may not know the genuine nature of your faith until it costs you something, until you're tested. You don't have to go looking for that test. You just have to desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. J.C. Ralph speaks of them. He says, these people take a, they feel a pleasure in the preaching to which they listen. They, they flatter themselves. They must, they must have grace in their hearts. And yet they are thoroughly deceived. Old things have not yet passed away. There is no real work of conversion in their inward man. With all their feelings, affections, joys, hopes, and desires, they are actually on the high road to destruction. So what do we do with this? How do we, how do we put this in our spiritual pocket and, and walk out? It's, I think there's some critical things to remember. First of all, the primary takeaway ought to be we need to sow the seed. Without reference to any soil, because you don't know, listen, you do not know the condition of any soil outright. You may think it's an impenetrable heart, and you may be planting, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, and someone else may water and someone else may reap. You, you don't know. So first, we need to be faithful to sow the word. You don't know where you are in that process. And just as a footnote to that, lest you get possibly any spiritual pride, if you were able to, ever able to lead someone to Christ, be humble enough to, not to, to think, well, I did that. That's probably the end of a long series of processes that the Lord has put into a person's life. Another thing to remember is don't make the mistake that you're certain the, the kind of soil that you're dealing with. Well, they didn't hear, so they're unresponsive. I'm not gonna tell them the gospel ever again. No, no, no. Keep sowing the word. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Never give up on the grace of God in the gospel offer to anyone. I think another thing to remember is don't, uh, don't be shocked by a lack of response. When there's no response, don't go back to your house and lay your head on your pillow and go, well, 
it must be me. I'm, I'm not faithful. No, we need to be faithful sowers. And as Jesus was informing and equipping these early men and women, he is informing and equipping us. Don't be discouraged by a lack of response. Be encouraged by faithful sowing. This passage is intended for our confidence in the work of the seed, not to steal the confidence from the work of the seed and put it on ourselves. Another thing to remember is implicit, that's probably not true, explicit in this text is that persecution awaits those with genuine faith. Don't be alarmed when you're persecuted. Matthew 10, this will cause divisions between married people and fathers and mothers and children and family members. Don't be surprised by that. And the final takeaway I have from this is a final takeaway. I don't think it's the last one. Know that God is doing something in persecution and know what God is doing in persecution. Know that he's doing something and know what he's doing something. Remember Romans chapter five, verses one to five? We studied that for several weeks. Very interesting. He says, exult, joy, rejoice in your tribulation. And then this all important word, knowing. Knowing, knowing. That tribulation brings perseverance, persevering, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope doesn't disappoint. In other words, if you know what God is doing, that gives you the sustenance to be able to endure through persecution. What if you don't? What if you don't? Now, most of you, I'm sure, hear this and say, well... Not Rick, but Jesus. Jesus, that's interesting. But what about Peter? Peter's persecuted the night of Jesus' arrest, right? He's persecuted. Three times he's asked if he even has an association with the Lord. And three times he says, nothing to do with that guy. I don't even know him. Was he a shallow soil? No. How do you know? Because he went away and wept bitterly. And he came back. This is not, this is not to be interpreted as condemning anyone who has momentary weaknesses, which we all have. This is a sustained Walk away, fall away. Peter didn't fall away. He tripped. Just like you and just like me. Judas, on the other hand, he fell away. And it's probably better illustrated in the next soil than this one, but he fell away in a different way than did Peter. You know, I think the central consideration of this soil is, is really that of worth, how do you answer the question, is Christ more valuable to you than any cost commitment to him might bring? 
Is Christ more valuable to you than any cost that a commitment to him might bring? You're not gonna endure persecution perfectly. But you are gonna come to your senses and not fall away, but always come back. If you have genuine faith. Jesus is telling the disciples, you gotta know what's coming. Don't be surprised if this happens. He's also telling us the same, keep sowing the seed. But there's also a warning in here that if you are on the edge, on the bubble of considering whether Christ is worth the cost, that's the question to answer. I'm also... I also believe what the martyrs in the Reformation said that Christ, God doesn't give the grace of suffering before the hour of suffering. You know, I look at these martyrs who've been burnt at the stake or some nailed to crosses like Peter was and killed, executed, had gasoline poured on them and lit on fire. And I think, I, I, don't, I just, I don't know if I could do that. That grace comes then just enjoy the grace that you have now. If you don't know Christ, this is a good day. It's a good day to, to find him. I wanna encourage you that if you're thinking about this, it could be the Holy Spirit just kind of ripping open the scales of your heart to give you a curiosity and a desire that ought to be satisfied by knowing the gospel today. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Our prayer room would be open. There are people around you who would love to tell you what it means to give your life to a very worthy Savior who is worth submitting to as Lord all the days of your life.